Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzir. I'm Isa. And on the 44th episode, we have lots to talk about, including two big Marvel titles. Um, Loki, the, as we found out, not limited series, but the Loki <laughs> series just concluded its first season uh, alongside the much belated release of Black Widow. Yeah. Um, which was you know delayed for over a year due to COVID, and even without COVID, to be honest, Black Widow should have been released a long time ago. Yeah. We're here to talk about part one also of Masters of the Universe Revelation, mm-hmm. the animated sequel to He Man and Masters of the Universe by Kevin Smith on Netflix. Um, I have lots of stuff to go through on Quick Hits, including the Space Jam sequel, <laughs> the most recent um Fear Street adaptation on Netflix, uh, Resident Evil. Uh, the the new Kingdom mini movie that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, Isa will be talking about Troll Hunters, the movie to wrap up the three series of Troll Hunters, Three Below, and Wizards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, I'll be talking about Andy Weir's incredible new book, Project Hail Mary. Um, no one does hard sci-fi better than Andy Weir. Mm-hmm. But I I think we we should begin with the two Marvel titles, right? Those were the the. the unquestionably the biggest titles of the month <laughs> and they've been trending on Twitter non-stop, non-stop. And, and I think I want to begin with the multiverse of madness uh, not Doctor Strange but Loki itself yeah. um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe keeps the train rolling with its third TV series in six months mm. um, this time featuring the return of Tom Hiddleston as the god of mischief after the events of Avengers Endgame uh, the time displaced supervillain finds himself in the clutches of the Time Variance Authority, which is a bureaucratic force that polices time travel. Uh, Owen Wilson also stars as Mobius and makes a wry foil as a time cop who chips away at the layers of the cunning villain while using him to track a mysterious time-hopping villain. Um, okay, overall, I think I have like a, a pretty mad take on Loki. So yep. in the interest of fairness, I'm going to first list out the things that I thought were very good at first, you know? Yeah. Um, firstly, the production value. Oh. The retro-futuristic set design and aesthetic is incredible and beautiful. Uh, the score is damn cool with its theremins, uh, synthesizer mm-hmm. moogs and all of that. Um, Tom Hiddleston has oodles of chemistry with Owen Wilson. Uh, and honestly, I wouldn't have minded the whole show being about them you know, bantering in a room. Uh, conceptually, the idea of this, you know, dry, monotonous, soulless bureaucracy, uh, being the greatest power in the multiverse is a great idea. I mean, of course, true power isn't flashy or imposing like Thanos is. Mm-hmm. Real power and real evil is boring, uh, drowned in procedure and paperwork, uh, tricking people by making them cogs in a gigantic machine, uh, as we kind of discussed on uh, Behold on Immigration Nation. Yeah. Um, and also the deconstruction of Loki and his layers of narcissism and self-loathing, leading to genuine change and growth and self-forgiveness and self-love, uh, metaphorically and literally, is well done in my opinion. It's <laughs> accentuated by Loki making his very first true friend in the MCU in Mobius and having his very first love interest uh, in a female alternate reality ver- variant of himself. Uh, and finally... The Loki finale, I think, is hands down the best finale of any of the MCU Disney Plus shows so far. Yeah, sure. um, I think it had a damn cool reveal. Uh, it elegantly explained everything and set up the future of the MCU. Uh, and it let us simmer in this really cool sense of sci-fi, dread, slash cosmic horror via... Um, no spoilers here, we'll talk about spoilers at the end. Um, one surprise actors 
magnetic speechifying and scenery chewing. Um, so I think thematically and conceptually, uh, as a broad strokes kind of equation, right? You know, on a piece of paper in write this room, it kind of works beautifully. Yeah. Like on, on paper, the ideas work great. In execution, not so much. And I think you mirror my sentiments in the fact that uh, this was a, a, a tale of two halves where the first half was not very great and the second half worked hard to redeem the show overall to give it a passing grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do, do you echo the sentiments? Yeah, for sure. I, I think it struggles, especially for the first like three episodes, right? Like literally the first half. A lot of it, I think, has to do with how much time it takes to unpack the TVA mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes too long and much like the bureaucracy of the TVA itself, right? It is a trudge. It really is. Uh, it's interesting world building for sure, and as you've already covered, it is definitely um, it's definitely in a fascinating concept, right? I mean, like we do get some of them in the comic books, but I don't think we've ever gotten such a deep look into it. Yeah, um, and and it's interesting trying to tie in like all these kind of like uh, like Renslayer, for example, right? Like readers of the comic book would, would know what that's all about, uh, and and kind of seen the ending a bit a bit ahead of time. Um, but for the rest of us who are just kind of going along for the MCU ride, right? Like, it's a, it's a unique way to both tie in some pretty deep cuts from the comics and continue Loki's story as well as introduce fascinating new characters and mm. set up for the eventuality that we will have with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Yeah. So all those things are really, really cool. I think it's just really the tragedy at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. We don't the emotional turns and kind of the character arcs in the first three episodes are kind of meh. Uh, while I do enjoy the kind of like semi-buddy cop between like Owens and uh, and Hiddleston, like it's not, you know, it's not enough, right? Like it's only really when we get Sylvie into the picture that I start to enjoy everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, some, of the, some stuff is really, really great. I really love the score. Um, who's done by Natalie Hawk, who did Paddington, by the way. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, amazing, amazing stuff. Like, the production value is just through the roof. And, like, you can't... You've got so much just kind of, like, acting prowess just in Hiddleston himself, right? In the, mm-hmm. the many kind of, like, faces that he plays and all of that. Um, and I have to say, Sylvie is probably my favorite new MCU character mm. uh, in a long while. Um, yeah, but I don't think... Uh, we can take uh, away from the fact that the second half of the season for the final three episodes have given us the most consequential TV in the MCU mm. that we've ever had. Right? And I think like it's raised the stakes significantly, not just for the story of Loki itself, but what, what it means for the greater universe in total. Mm. Uh, and that, I feel, is incredibly important. Um and it, it feels good. It feels good because it has consequence, right? Yes. Uh, like for WandaVision, we didn't really get that. Uh, you know, there's inklings about it. And I mean, of course, it's Feige's like grandmaster plan, right? But uh, mm-hmm. we didn't really get that. You know, Captain America, I mean, Winter Soldier, Captain America didn't really, uh, didn't really stick the landing, didn't really have anything of like great significance. It didn't really answer that many questions as well. Mm. Um, you know, but like I think we got that with Loki, and I think like because of that, mm. uh, last three things, I'm 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 giving it a good grade because like it really carried it, it really carried it through. Uh, that and the fact that classic Loki is a joy. Yes, uh, Richard E. Grant. Yeah. So 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 good. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I would have loved to see more of that. I, I don't know if it would have been any better if it was like a little longer. If they could have extended the last three episodes into mm. like six episodes, yeah, maybe I, I feel it would be a bit more balanced, you know? Mm. But if we were going on like a three-episode rule, like, like Loki wouldn't have passed for sure. Absolutely. I think like Loki feels like it could have been a great two-and-a-half-hour movie stretched into six hours. Yeah. Um, if this was a movie or maybe even condensed into a four-episode miniseries mm. or even a half-hour runtime for the first three episodes, yeah. I think it would have flowed much better. Um, as it stands now, when the show is not focusing on good character work, it feels like a series of exposition and mythology jumps uh, and cool Easter eggs that set up the future of the MCU. Uh, nothing wrong with that, but it yeah. has to be more than that, you know. Um, as a time travel narrative, it's, I mean, frankly, kind of a diluted, less inventive version of Doctor Who or Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah. Um, it has one-tenth of the imagination and the fun of those <laughs> aforementioned shows, despite having like 10 times the budget. Oh, uh, yeah. and, and, and that's a shame, you know. And, and to make it worse, the action sequences aren't particularly great, so they can't mm. even mask the sort of derivative time travel story with some cool fights. Yeah. Uh, what it does do well, though, is inf- uh, open up infinite doors for the future of MCU storytelling, which we'll be getting next month with the What If series, mm-hmm. uh, with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, with Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, and Ant-Man Quantumania. Uh, so this like sets up intriguing nuggets for all, all of those properties, you know. Yeah. Uh, so okay, cool. Like Loki set up a ton of fun shit for the future, and and gosh darn, like the the fact that every plot thrust was driven by character motivation and growth. Mm-hmm. Okay, I I'll yeah. accept that as a yeah. plus. It was very refreshing. <laughs> uh, but if you take Loki on its own, it's only kind of a half success due to is um to put it kindly, uh, pacing failures. Yeah. 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 I, the thing is, I don't know how they could have done it better. Mm. You know, like, I, I'm not really sure how you could have fixed the first three episodes in, in the format that they've decided on, right? Like, obviously, shortening the series or, like, expanding the later half would have made it feel a little more well-paced. But, like, for the first three episodes, like, I don't know how you can actually get around. I think the first two the episodes fact. could have been one episode. Easily. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, given given that the runtime kind of stretched between like what forty minutes to like fifty five minutes, mm. definitely doable. Yeah, or alternately, because you're on a, a streaming service, right? The first three episodes could have easily have been twenty five minutes, like bites, uh, you know, a bit like Wonder Vision, right? You know? Yeah. So to keep it quick and fast, and then when it comes to like the big episodes, like the finale, for example, you could have expanded it to sixty minutes or seventy five minutes or ninety minutes, even mm-hmm. if you wanted to. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's up to you. It's yeah. your streaming service, you know. Yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, shall we delve into spoilers now? Yes, let's do that. Okay. Uh, if you do not want to listen to spoilers, spoilers are coming up in five, four, three, two, one. Okay. So one of the big spoilers <laughs> at the end is, of course. Uh, the sacred timeline is is trashed after Sylvie uh, murders uh, not Kang the Conqueror but Immortus, which is the more benevolent variant of Kang the Conqueror who shows mm-hmm. up in the finale yeah. uh, in the form of Lovecraft Country's Jonathan Majors. Um, so the multiversal future and the and the branches branching upon themselves, you know, it sets up intriguing things. Uh, number one, uh, just speaking of it as an Agents of Shield fan, uh, yeah. it finally puts Agents <laughs> of Shield in canon. Yes, uh, because we can accept that that Coulson's resurrection was in a branching timeline, and 
that's cool with me. As long as Agents of Shoot is canon and it's given like you know a proper place in the MCU, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Uh, as, as it does with Marvel, Netflix, with Cloak and Dagger and Runaways, etc., are all canon thanks to the branching timelines. Um, with Immortus slash Kang the Conqueror slash Nathaniel Richards, um, <laughs> great new character to introduce. Also, the fact that Jonathan Majors doesn't have to play this version of the character all the time. He can play yep. multiple various versions of this character. So this particular version was really quirky, was really eccentric, was really scenery-chewing, and it was great for what it was, you know? Mm-hmm. But for those who complain that he wasn't really kag, he wasn't imposing or scary, you'll get that at Ant-Man. In 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 Man yeah. Quantumania because yeah. he's going to be playing Kang there as well. So mm-hmm. I I I love those. You know what? What do you think about Jonathan Majors' surprise revelation as the villain at the end? I mean, I think a lot of us kind of expected it to be Kang, right? Like you yep. can't do, you know, you can't do a time thing in 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 Marvel and and not have Kang kind of pop up of anywhere. Uh, I I do I I really enjoyed his his version of Immortus. Right, like Immortus in the comics is a little more kind of like self serious, yep. right? A bit, a bit colder, you know. This whole kind of like laissez faire kind of you know, um, cheeky smile and all of that, um, Immortus that we got here was entirely enjoyable. Like, just the repartee between him and Sylvie and, and Loki was very fun to watch, right? Uh, despite yeah. the fact that that comes in like the very, very last episode, mm-hmm. more or less, uh, and you know, it, it, it holds its own against all of the action of the of the penultimate episode and, and what we got in episode um f- four as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. Uh but now seeing seeing his immortus, I'm curious how he's gonna do Kang. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just like what what the disposition is gonna be. Because like over the years, Kang being such a a, a pivotal figure in, in Marvel comics, right, has been played in many kind of different uh, uh, personalities, right? So, like, he has a ton of stuff to kind of choose from. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I do appreciate that he, he might choose a different route than a Thanos, like, because we've seen that type of villain before. I would yeah. like a different personality for, for a villain in the yeah. for the next big bad in the MCU in the future. And mm-hmm. clearly, Kang is being set up as the as the next Thanos, like, like yeah. Phase four, five, and six are probably going to be focused around this multiversal war. Uh, that's really really cool, you know. Um, it also it's the first MCU series that is setting up a season two. Um, how do you feel about this? Um, I want to see more Sylvie, for sure. Definitely. Right? She's probably um, going to be an anti-hero antagonist slash... Uh, not, not like a villain, <laughs> but no, like no. Uh, a, com- a complication in, in the TVA's efforts in the second season. Yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. I think if anything, like Sylvie's story arc was far more compelling than Loki's. Um, just because yeah. like we are we're so familiar with the Loki character by now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we just bring something completely new to the table. Even even with like the whole like conglomeration of of Loki's in the void, you know, yep. you can kind of see like she stands out kind of significantly from that. And I think we're missing that from the MCU right now. We don't have or haven't had like a true anti-hero archetypal figure that mm-hmm. you're willing to root for, right? Not, mm, yeah, n- none that like specifically come to mind. Mm, there uh, is one that will come up with the next topic, but yeah, for, for now, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, and we'll get to that and we'll get to that. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I'm, I'm really curious to see like how they continue to expand on that. Uh, I actually did enjoy Owen Wilson. Uh, it, it was, it was, he was like, he provided the comic relief that was necessary. Right, mm-hmm. he pulled his own weight as far as it goes. 
Um, yeah. Um, I don't think he'll ever say wow, but we'll we'll see. Uh, given... you you you, you gotta save the wow and the jet skis for a later season. You know, you can't you can't just like you know give it straight yeah, away in the first yeah. season if you're planning a long a long series. Uh, yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, like and Kate Heron already said that it wasn't going to happen, but she's no longer with the series for season two. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we'll see who the sh- new showrunner is and whether or not they will toss us that a uh, little bit of fan service for the Owen Wilson fans. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like all in all, like really, really solid stuff. Uh, I-, I love the whole kind of like complication and the, the very complex um, feelings between Loki and Sylvie. I-, I think that's a fascinating kind of philosophical discussion mm-hmm. that's there. I'm not at all surprised with the revelation that, that Loki is bisexual because guys, do you uh, read up on your your <laughs> your your Norse gods and and <laughs> all of that. I actually think that Loki is far more than bisexual. I think he's non-binary. Yeah, I mean, like there's the whole horse thing, which I love the fact that they gave a nod to that, right? Yeah, um, you know, um, he's an he's an alligator too here. You know, he's he's not just two genders. He's many many things. He can be anything he wants. That's yeah. the beauty of Loki, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, on his on his um, I guess his his profile sheet in the TVA, it's it marks him as fluid. fluid right? So, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, totally understand that. I have no idea why people are surprised at that. Uh, and yeah, mm-hmm. and it makes total sense for him to, you know, fall in love or at least be, have tons of affection for someone who is himself, which is what he's lacking, mm-hmm. right? Like on a psychoanalytical kind of way. Uh, I, I mm-hmm. yeah, I really do like that. I mean, it was, a, there were moments when it was a bit much with the kind of like googly eyes, you know, in the scenery chewing here and there but all in all I, th- I think that was pretty fun uh, yeah um, how yeah. would you rate this overall and and, and any final thoughts uh, spoilery thoughts before we cap it off um, I want to see what they, they're going to do with uh, Ravona Renslayer right right. Yeah. She, she I think is going to be a, a secondary villain next season for sure yeah, yeah. I, I think like that's going to be extremely important like she has such a complex like comic background uh, um, yeah. yeah, comic history like it's kind of all over the place. So I, I really want to see how that works out. Whether or not she ends up showing in the main timeline, uh, with mm-hmm. the movies itself, because like Kang is a big part of her history as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Kang's a lover, right? Yeah, Kang's her lover turned enemy turned. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it's a long story, but I, I mean, I don't think we saw much of her, uh, or enough of her in this particular part. But like, totally understandable. Yeah. Um and yeah, actually that's pretty much it. Uh more or less. So we'll we'll see where this goes. We'll see where yeah. this goes. Um how would you rate it overall? Uh, I'm gonna give this a six point five for mm, me. Uh okay. I feel like it plays an important role and it's critical for the big things that the MCU wants to do. Mm-hmm. Uh but half a season is not enough to make it like a, an amazing score. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm giving it a 6.5 as well. Uh, I echo all your sentiments. Uh, uh, that being said, I am very much looking forward to season two. Because, Me too. Because uh, if one thing that Loki does well is it captures your imagination and has uh, tons of potential. Uh, whether it can fulfill that potential is the question. Yeah. But I, I'm intrigued by the possibilities. Uh, next up, we have, you know, from opening up the door to the future of the MCU, uh, we are opening up a window to the past in Black Widow. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, she is the Avengers original female member who finally gets her own solo movie mm-hmm. in this prequel spy thriller set between Captain America Civil War 
and Avengers Infinity War. Yep. Um, Scarlett Johansson obviously stars in the titular role alongside Florence Pugh, David Harbour from Stranger Things, Raquel Weisz, uh, and more. Um, in past MCU films, we've seen bits and pieces of how Natasha Romanoff became a COVID assassin, you know, teases mm-hmm. of her past, including her parentage, uh, some pivotal time in Budapest, uh, have all been <laughs> placed. Uh, but the truth is that she's the Avenger with the least amount of backstory. Yeah. Um, well, that's belatedly remedied here. Um, the film does a lot to explain Natasha, you know, from the Soviet program that made her to her original dysfunctional found family mm-hmm. uh, in an effort to add new layers to her character all while delivering a Jason Bourne slash Mission Impossible-esque espionage thriller. Um, The movie introduces us to a few important people in Natasha's life, specifically parental figures Alexei and Melina and a sister named Yelena. Um, We see them decades prior to the film's timeline in an opening sequence that um, directly and unabashedly rips off the American (laughs) TV show. Um, It's just straight straight up almost a short-for-short remake of uh, of their series finale. Um, it, It then fast forwards to when Natasha was on the run after she and Team Cap decide to ignore the Sokovia Accords. Uh, eventually, she and Yelena reunite to form a shaky alliance to take down the Black Widow program, the mm-hmm. thing that made her a train killer and still continues to abduct little girls and to turn them into living weapons. Um, so does this movie work for you? Uh, it was serviceable. It was yeah. serviceable. I mean, like, if nothing else, it it gave, uh, I think, like, just good spots of humor and, like, love Florence Pugh, love Yelena as a character. Mm-hmm. Kind of love the banter with, with all of that. But for, as for the titular character, like, I, nothing much was brought to the table, right? Like, yeah. you get all these revelations as kind of like an off-screen thing. You know, uh, the fact that, oh, you know, like, she's sterile because, you know, it's part of the program, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that. You never really quite see the actual horrors of the Red Room yep. itself. Um, which... I'm I'm not sure why they made that particular choice. Uh, mm-hmm. what what was that Jennifer Lawrence film that was like we were saying that was basically like Black Widow, Red, Red Sparrow? Sparrow? Yeah. yeah, right. So essentially, like you know, it, it it shied away from doing a Red Sparrow and like showing you the actual details of her training and all of that, and you kind of like get it. It comes up in references and some flashbacks here and there and some conversation, but you don't get the meat of that. So at the end of the day, after watching this movie, right, how much more do you actually know of Black Widow before the movie? Yeah. Outside absolutely. of the fact that she has family, mm-hmm. right? Outside of the fact that, you know, there is a there is a, a another big bad kind of like hidden, you know, uh amidst all the things that are there. Like Definitely. Not much. Not much at all. Which is kind of sad, right? Like Scarjo for all of her big box office kind of like hits and all the things that she's kind of headlined. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got some acting chops, right? Mm-hmm. Just think of um, oh no, what's that strange alien indie one that we love? Under the skin. Uh, under the skin. Yeah. yeah uh, right. Marriage Story a couple marriage years story. ago. Of yeah. course, her first movie, Lost in Translation. I mean, she has shown her chops in indie films, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like milk some of that. You know, mm-hmm. give us a bit of trauma. <laughs> yeah. Because there, there isn't any of that, uh, and I I think it was a bit of a waste for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so like outside of introducing kind of like um, hinting at the fact that you know uh, more super soldiers abound hinting at the fact that you know uh, there are, there's another kind of Captain America in the picture that we don't know about yeah. um, hinting at the fact that you know um, the X-Men are coming really soon yeah um, 
what what else have we been given from this right and and it's insane the kind of money that they've made off of black widow mm-hmm. uh as the first uh kind of like comeback blockbuster film for the MCU this year yeah um but you know it, it's it's kind of lacking in a lot of places not that it wasn't oh. fun not that i yeah. didn't have a good time with it but uh you could yeah. have done a lot more with with kind of like you know the 2 hour ish runtime that, that they gave us yeah, yeah. Um, I think this movie was a mild disappointment. Um, and it is, although I do have to say, it's sufficiently entertaining. Yeah, for and sure. has enough redeeming qualities for it to not be a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, the parts that work are Natasha's family dynamics. Oh yeah. Um, especially her interactions with Florence Pugh, which are immensely entertaining. Yeah. Uh, but palpable tension between Elena and Natasha are the driving force of the movie and used to power some great action set pieces mm-hmm. and most surprisingly, a lot of humor. Yeah. Um, Yelena clowns on Natasha constantly, uh, <laughs> making for some of the best bits of the movie. Yeah. Um, she's the total opposite of Natasha and comes across as you know funny and goofy and self-aware. Uh, Pew steals the movie, to be honest. Yeah. And, uh, and if they were planning to use you know one indie star to drive the movie, it wasn't Scarlett. Johansson, it was yeah. Florence Pugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have been kind of kind of down for this if it was just a family dramedy, to be honest, because the cast chemistry among Pugh and David Harbour as Red Guardian and Weiss mm-hmm. is, is uh, instantly endearing. Um, yeah. David Harbour is also another standout as a, a washed-up Russian <laughs> superhero called the Red Guardian, yeah. uh, who is miffed at his irrelevance and longs for his glory days. He's hilarious, you know. But the, uh, that being said, uh, the action is, you know, pretty solid. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. filled it's filled with some actually some of the best practical stunt work oh, yeah. that, that I've seen in the MCU so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the plot though, you know, that being said, the plot is quite uninspired. Yeah. Uh, and most egregiously, Black Widow once again feels like a bit player in her own movie. Um, the movie isn't called Yelena. The movie isn't called The Red Guardian. Yeah. It's called Black Widow. And Natasha's growth here feels limited and unsatisfying. You yeah. Know? Um, as much as you know, the like for example, you said like uh, Sylvie was a new new favorite character. Like mm-hmm. Yelena is mine. You know, but yeah. that's not good enough for a Black Widow film. Uh, much in much in the same way that Loki isn't called Sylvie. You know. Yeah. Um, it's. Its villain Taskmaster is also rather a rather dull antagonist. Um, Taskmaster is presented mostly as an undefeatable Terminator, mm-hmm. able to mimic any any fighting style. And the reveal of who Taskmaster was in the end is kind of predictable as well. Yeah. Um. So I... what you're left what you're <laughs> left with, right, is is where the main hero and the main villain Taskmaster, including Drakov too, are basically the most boring parts of the movie. So it's mm-hmm. not a good look, right? Yeah. 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 For yeah. sure. I, I will say, no spoilers because we will dive into that. Uh, the minute I saw somebody's name in kind of like the starting sequence, I knew who Taskmaster was like straight away. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I immediately knew uh, who it was going to be and I immediately knew how the reveal was going to go and I just like, damn it. Oh my God. Seriously, that's what they're going to do. It, it's, it's such a waste because Taskmaster is such a fascinating character in the comic books. Uh-huh. Um and for it to be kind of like shoehorn into this bit role, like just like non consequential role, it's kind of sad because uh, Taskmaster has given some of the best heroes in in the Marvel universe some of the most trouble, despite the fact that he, uh, it, yeah, basically you know um isn't isn't particularly super powered or anything. Yes, hundred yeah. uh, percent. Uh, very much agreed. Okay. Um, shall we delve into spoilers? Yeah, perhaps? let's do it. All right. So if you are not, 
you've not seen him film, uh, stop listening right now. Uh, spoilers will abound. Uh, just just look at the timeline. Uh, just look at the timestamps. Yeah. Uh, so we'll read off the spoilers in five, four, three, two, one. Okay. So um, the big one is the post-credit sequence with uh <laughs> Yelena being uh. Not say confronted, being visited by uh, Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, like yeah. Madame Hydra, played by Julia Louis Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. Um, so it turns out that Yelena, in her post, uh, post this film, has been working for Madame Hydra, mm-hmm. um, which sparks you know uh, intense speculation that you know uh, the MCU is setting up the Thunderbolts. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. With with Yelena as one of the leaders, with U.S. agents, with a uh, ghost from uh, Ant Man and the Wasp, with Abomination, uh, with a uh, Baron Zemo, for example, with uh, White Vision. So they kind of set up a lot of um, a lot of Thunderbolts uh, kind of pieces here as well. Yeah. As well as setting up Yelena as the villain in the upcoming Hawkeye series. Uh, not say villain, but antagonist to, yeah. to Hawkeye because um, Valentina Allegra de Fontaine claims that Hawkeye was the cause of Natasha's death in mm-hmm. Boromir. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhat true, but not really. Uh, yeah. So, um, But, you know, Clint is going to have a hard time convincing Yelena of that. So it makes for an intriguing uh, villain because we're kind of rooting for Yelena as well in, in the Hawkeye series. Uh, what do you think about number one, the Thunderbolts, and number two, her being in a Hawkeye show? All the pieces are set up for Thunderbolts already, right? Like the classic, yeah. like original Thunderbolts, all of them set up. You've, Ross is already around, yeah. right? Um, and, and of course, like they've uh, over time and now with Black Widow out, like it kind of sets that up. I'm curious as to whether or not, because since Black Widow was originally supposed to come out before. Uh, before Winter Soldier, right? Um, um no. Uh, Black Widow is supposed to come out before Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, not, Falcon. Not Captain, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Before Falcon and the Winter Soldier, right? Correct. So technically, Yelena, yeah. or as the conversation goes, right, she's already been recruited. So this is mm-hmm. prior to, um, John prior Walker's to, induction. Yeah, yeah, John Walker's induction, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it makes total sense. It would be very, very fascinating. Personally, I feel like Thunderbolts has always been kind of the lesser mirror to Suicide Squad, in the comics, mm-hmm. at least, right? I'm not talking about the movies mm-hmm. uh, necessarily. Um, but it would be super interesting to see. I, I think, like, uh, we've gotten a lot of heroes. It's, it's, it's be, it'll be interesting to see how, kind of, like, the villain team does. Um as with any kind of like Dark, dark Avengers, Thunderbolts and, and all of that that we've got in the comics. Yeah. Um, it'll be super interesting to see how they kind of play that out. I think like the the characters that they've chosen and the people they've chosen to play those characters are very, very promising. Um, mm-hmm. Given that we've seen Abomination come back in uh, Shang-Chi. Uh, yeah, the Shang-Chi trailer. In the yeah. Shang-Chi trailer, right? So like everything is kind of set up there and, and you know, we'll see where it goes. Um, not that I'm particularly excited about it. I think yeah. like um, the problem with having these kind of like uh, villain teams is that they most of the time get stuck with inconsequential bad guys mm-hmm. uh, that they kind of have to take down. Uh, so the stakes tend to be a little lower, and you are usually not as invested uh, than your main your mainline kind of like heroes, you know, uh, mm-hmm. as to what happens to them. But given that how a lot there's a lot of love hate uh, with the the characters are there, everyone loves Yelena. You want to see where she goes. Mm-hmm. You hate 
you know, US agent, you want to see where that goes as well. I think yeah. like by the time they set everything up for a Thunderbolts movie, it should be pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I think the principal players in the Thunderbolts all have compelling compelling character dynamics. Whether you love or hate them, you are interested in them, yeah, shall we say. Yeah. Sure. Uh so yeah, it, it sets up very well. Uh, the Hawkeye series will be has confirmed to premiere before 2021 is over alongside Ms. Marvel. Yeah. Um Yelena looks to be a big part of that. Uh, are you excited to see Yelena and Hawkeye? And and what do you think about the Hawkeye series? Uh I well, we'll see. Like Hawkeye hasn't really been my favorite character. Yeah, it's been uh, no one's favorite character, to yeah, be honest. Um <laughs> but I mean like uh, it, okay, so in the quiet moments, right? In in Clint's quiet moments on the farm and all of that, when he's he's not playing up the bravado that comes with running around with a bow and arrow with a bunch of like superpowered human <laughs> superpowered beings. Yeah. Uh you know, those those are, are pretty good, you know. And he does have all, more or less over the the decade or so that we've had the MCU and he's been around, he's got a good set of you know, a good good head on his shoulders, more or less, except for the Ronin kind of period, which I completely didn't buy. Mm-hmm. Um it will be interesting. I think like we've gotten a lot of kind of like good moments with Clint and uh, Natasha um, kind of playing off this like kind of deep friendship that they have nurtured through through many years of like working together and going on missions and stuff like that. Um, yes. If they can nail that kind of tone in the Hawkeye film between Yelena and Clint uh, while they are at ends with each other or at odds with each other, I mean, sure. I, I think it could definitely work uh, I think that them setting up, uh, I, I don't know if this is confirmed yet, but they're setting up the new Hawkeye, aren't they? Uh, Haley Steinfeld is, yeah. um, is the new Hawkeye, yeah. Yeah, so like, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I, I won't go into the whole background for people who aren't really sure that. But setting that yeah. up will be great. I mean, we are definitely, we are, we are deep into Phase 4 right now, um, you know, and... With everything that's going on, with Miss Marvel coming out and all of that, having the Young Avengers being on the plate very, very soon, mm-hmm. uh, I'm excited to see how that sets up. And I would like them to take the time to wrap up um, uh, wrap up Hawkeye's kind of story within yeah. his... like. Show me what it is to struggle amongst superheroes, right? Yeah. Like, show me what that really, really is. You know, because as much as, like, we've got both him and Natasha on the Avengers and they're not super powered per se. Natasha is pretty much close to being like Captain America level shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whereas Clint is genuinely, I mean, he's a sharpshooter, right? And that's yep. like kind of canon, you know? Um, yeah. But, eh, um, sh- show me him being human. I-, I don't think we've seen that part of it, right? Uh, he's not mm-hmm. a billionaire with with like all his machines and stuff. He's not, a, he's not an Asgardian god and all of that. If you can show me the human side of what it is to be an Avenger and to run with that crew and the consequences of that, mm. I'm down. I'm totally down with that. And then setting up a protege to take over from you who knows full well what the struggles of those things are, mm-hmm. I think it'll be a very compelling drama. Um, mm. Yeah. Tossing Yelena into that, damn. I, I think like it's it's promising. It's definitely promising. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I was thinking of was, uh, as as you mentioned, that like a lot of supervillain or anti-hero team, shall we say, which yeah. are Thunderbolts, have kind of um, non-consequential villains. But what if their antagonists were the Young Avengers? You know, it gives them a team versus team kind of fight. You know, oh, um, 
as like setting up as the villain for the Young Avengers film with like Ms. Marvel and Kate Bishop and etc. etc. and, and Spider Man and all of that. Uh, that could be a way to go as well, rather than having a solo Thunderbolts film, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it depends on how they want to do the scheduling for that. Yeah. Um, it could be it could be a variety of things, but I mean, at this point in time, right? Mm-hmm. Given the kind of roll up they're doing, they're going to be massively out outplaying the Young Avengers. Uh, mm-hmm. Given the current roster, unless they're going to bring, um, yeah, unless they're going to bring, I don't know, I don't know. I I think we don't have enough information at this point. That would mm-hmm. be really interesting. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, kind of to what end, right? Like, I think we've grown accustomed to the fact that every MCU piece that we get needs to play a part in the kind of the bigger picture. And when mm-hmm. we don't get that, it feels kind of, uh, right? Much like mm-hmm. Black Widow. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, outside of the introduction of Yelena and her impact in the upcoming uh, series and films, um, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to see. Uh, yeah. But I mean, like, it's insane how much Marvel has packed into this year and how much mm-hmm. they're going to be packing in the next couple of years. Like, at this point in time, it's an unstoppable machine. And I don't think we've ever failed anything mm-hmm. that's come up from the MCU. Uh, we have three movies and three series in the next five months. Um, so, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, how would you rate uh, Black Widow overall? Uh, Black Widow is, is a six for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, some moments are absolutely great. Florence Pugh is an inspired casting choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we've loved her in, in like so many things, right? We've talked about her in Little Women. We've talked about her in... Oh God. Uh, Midsommar. Midsommar and all of that. Yeah. Like, it's an inspired casting choice. Such a great kind of fun character. The yeah. running gag with the posing is mm-hmm. ridiculously uh, <laughs> good. Like, despite it coming mm-hmm. up again and again. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it's a six out of ten for me as well. Um, echo all your sentiments, man. Yeah. Uh, and any final thoughts before we move on? Uh, no, no, no. That's kind of it for me. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so that was the Black Widow review. We're now moving on to Netflix to talk about Masters of Your Universe Revelation. Um, the original He Man and the Masters of the Universe is perhaps the quintessential nostalgic animated nineteen eighties show. <laughs> um, it's static animation. Its ultra-masculine approach to its magical fantasy world, the strained comic quips, the sidekicks, the hokey end-of-episode lessons, yeah. uh, all make it very lovably campy. Um, and it's those middle-aged fans who grew up watching the original as kids that are the target audience for Kevin Smith's sequel series. Not a mm. reboot, it's a sequel series. Masters of, U- of the Universe Revelation. Um, unlike Netflix's Shira reboot, Revelation definitely functions as a direct continuation of the or- original 130 episode run. Yeah. Um, this is at once a fascinating, ambitious, and kind of chaotic exercise because Revelation boldly tries to match the original show's intentionally corny aesthetic and sensibility. Yeah. While at the same time updating the narrative and visuals commenting on and or clarifying a lot of the original characterizations and providing old fans with plenty of references and Easter eggs, all while re-establishing the world of the show for perhaps a brand new audience. Uh, And it must do all of that in these initial five episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did it succeed, Isa? Uh, To an extent. To an extent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I do like the visual refresh. I do like 
the 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 kind of like eighties music that we're getting throughout, mm. like that's that's those things are definitely true to form. Um, I do. The, I I think there were some bold moves. I don't know if those bold moves necessarily paid off. Yeah. Uh, necessarily, right? Um, there isn't a lot of He Man, which is kind of like the the center of this whole bait and switch controversy mm-hmm. that's ending up with it being review bombed on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, fuck those guys. Seriously, like mm-hmm. if if you don't enjoy it, just shut up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me. These five episodes were wholly uneven in many, many ways. Like, there's so many things to kind of pick up upon. Uh, I feel like we got some fantastic voice acting from some characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the standout of which was Lena Headey for me as Evelyn. Damn, like, her performances, mm-hmm. solid. Uh, Mark Hamill as Skeletor had some great moments, but devolves a lot into Joker territory. Yeah. Yeah, there are moments in time where it's a straight-up Joker laugh, and it is so iconic that you immediately pick up on it and that's kind of like breaking it, it, it breaks the immersion yes um, yeah Sarah Michelle Gellar is horrible as as mm-hmm. um, <laughs> as Tila like yeah. I don't know what was wrong with it there were points in time where you could actually hear the editing mm-hmm. um, of how they chopped up like it sounded like they were, like she div- delivered the line and it didn't work and so they chopped it up to put it together again Mm. And, you know, uh, and I, I, I mean, like, obviously, that's an occupational hazard from from my end of things, right? Being a sound designer and all of that, uh, yeah. but like, it was very obvious and very, very annoying uh, in mm-hmm. those places. The pacing was a mess. Mm. Uh, some of the fight scenes were fairly cool, mm. um, but I, I think like, as much as you know, Kevin Smith says that you know we want this to be like true to form and all of that. Uh, and and just like an updated version, we don't want to do like a Shira thing. Like from the very first episode. And mm. I mean, guys, this is not really a spoiler mm-hmm. because it happens like 10 minutes in. Um, mm-hmm. Like taking He-Man out of the picture and Skeletor out of the picture for the majority of these five episodes is a cool idea. Yeah. But like, you're not really sticking to what you said you were going to do. So I totally yeah. understand what fans are going on and on about. He was pre- protecting his reveal. Uh, I yeah, I guess yeah. so, right? But then like, I was watching this on Netflix and then immediately it, it auto-plays into... The Masters of the Universe Revelation Revelations, which is one of the silliest kind of like after show mm-hmm. discussion titles I've ever come across. Yeah. Uh, so dumb. And like he just jumped straight into that. Oh hey yeah. guys, we just did this. And I'm just like, that is that is oh, that is circle jerk to the max right there, right? Like that's a masterpiece to the max. Mm-hmm. And it, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Uh f- there's only so far nostalgia can take you. Uh, I appreciate taking bow swings uh, mm-hmm. and all of that but a lot of it was quite meh in my opinion um, and it wasn't meh because it was poorly done there were moments where but none of those moments get enough time yeah. for them to truly shine none of the yeah. characters have enough time to develop as characters right you can't take it for granted that we have all followed the original He-Man series and know what that's about even though many of us in our particular age group have, mm-hmm. right? You can't expect us to remember those things and you can't expect us to bridge that gap from there to here, yeah. right? And decide to go off on your own tangent about what you imagine that to be. Yeah. Um, and then while being this bastion of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm upholding this to, to the standard that people think uh, and, and I'm making it better. Mm-hmm. Right, like it, it just doesn't work that way, dude. So, 
Yeah. Uh, it it could have been so much better. Like it's just wholly uneven. It felt choppy, you know. Like the editing felt choppy, the the voice acting felt choppy, the pacing felt choppy. Like all of it felt like unpolished, despite mm-hmm. the updated visuals and the cool sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the thing. I think like Kevin Smith presents Eternia. One of the ways it was a good update was that you know it's a smoother, sharper, more dynamic animation. You know, yeah. but. Uh, also, I think he tried to maintain the clunky exposition dumps, the stilted dialogue, and yes, even the choppy editing of the original show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a, a risky, admirable move, especially with the decision to take He-Man and Skeletor out at the end of the first episode. Um, yeah. And he kind of pushes the characters and overall tone in a much more modern, darker, and, and kind of emotionally self-reflective subversive direction in yeah. subsequent episodes you know which is un- which that is unlike the original show yeah um so the revelation adds i think uh more stakes and more emotional complexity in interesting ways mm-hmm. but uneven ways to a bunch of characters yeah um eternia as it stands after the premiere has lost all its magic and uh the, the people of the realm you know are kind of standing in, in like bread lines for for enchanted water while kind of familiar formally uh, villainous lackeys become religious zealots for a new <laughs> form of power, uh, which is technology. Yeah. Um. So Smith and the creative team kind of wink and play into He-Man's corniest, outdated elements, but with a surprising amount of. I mean, it it does respect and admire the what came before, uh, yeah. But it, it kind of pushes it towards a darker uh sensibility. Um, and, and that kind of all hinges on the season-altering events at the premiere and, mm-hmm. and how much viewers are willing to buy into that. Um, as it stands, though, Masters of the Universe Revelation commits to, I think, um, design-wise, it commits to like um, harder, ultra-detailed designs, yeah. uh, the, kind, the kind of jokes and references that you know um, some people may get and some people may not. <laughs> um, but as much as the pivotal element in the premiere opens up, the larger storyline's potential. Revelation is, I think, both weirdly beholden to the past and weirdly irreverent to it, you know. It's yeah. both reverent and irreverent to it, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's that tonal uh, mishap there going on. Yeah. Um, certain characters are updated in ways, you know, uh, like Tila, uh, Lena Hades, Evil Lynn in particular oh, is yeah. probably the, the standout of the show, mm-hmm. while others remain as awkward as before. And, the updated characterizations are not uniform. Yeah. Um, and Revelation, uh, I think, okay, like, one thing it does well is it shows real acumen in dynamic action scenes and vibrant colors. You know? mm-hmm. um, Bear Mercurius music for the show and sound design. Uh, it matches the 1983 iteration while managing to sound a bit more bombastic. Yeah. Um, the writing and storytelling, uh, despite being uneven, it still leagues above the previous incarnation. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, because it delves deep into themes of loss, trauma, betrayal, trust, and has stakes. Um, I think Kevin Smith and team have managed to take a property that is so cheesy and campy uh, and turn it into something intriguing and reflective. If, I mean, like, it's... Some people don't want that. I, I, I totally oh, yeah. get that, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and on the downside, as I said, the show does take a very, very big risk early on, which, as it turns out, has alienated 99% of the He-Man fanbase, <laughs> which is their target audience, yeah. uh, judging by the outrage and review bombing happening online, you know? Yeah. So... Outside of professional critics, I could not find uh, a single fan review or opinion that wasn't over- overwhelmingly negative because of yep. what happens in episode one. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I've read, I've, it seems like 99% of those people 
haven't even gone past episode one because they felt betrayed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit of a, a a bit of a Rian Johnson Star Wars kind of situation. Yeah. So it may not work for you, but for me, uh, it works up to a certain extent. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. Um. For, okay. So the thing is, is that I appreciate the bow swings. I appreciate trying to modernize all of those things. I appreciate the new character arcs and all of that. Uh. But like you, the problem for me is that it doesn't straddle the things that it wants to do very well. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh. And and that is like you wanna pay homage and all of that and all of that's fine. But if you're gonna do, if you're gonna make both strides, I mean, like go all the way. Like like. You're going to anger people, that's going to happen already. You know, you're kind of sitting in kind of the middle here. Sure, you've updated it. You've taken, like, you've definitely made it better than what it was before, right? With all the things that you've added. But you've done it in such an awkward and clumsy way. And I don't know if that is, don't know if the fact that the original was awkward and clumsy as justification for that. Like, mm-hmm. we don't have to get that meta, guys, right? Mm-hmm. And in an age where we, we, we are living in, in an age of animation that is so, has so, so, so much to offer, right? With your Castlevanias, mm-hmm. with your, your Dragon's Blood, with your Shiras and and your Steven Universes and all of that. Like, it takes a lot for you to kind of, like, even touch that realm uh, of, you know, the storytelling and the animation and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just feels very very clumsy, which is unfortunate yeah. because I think like it does bring a lot to the table, mm-hmm. uh, and it, but as an overall thing, uh, it's it is hard to it's hard to appreciate the good things when the bad things are really kind of bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. With that in mind, you know, how would you rate it overall? I'm gonna give this a six out of ten. I, I think it was sufficiently enjoyable. Uh, you know, I, I think like going into it with the whole nostalgia factor and then kind of like trying to ride out, you know, these fantastic like kind of evil Lin character arc, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um and and you know, just like laughing at the whole like te- technology called <laughs> yeah. hated by Henry Rollins of all people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and some really, really solid um, very like legendary voice actors, right? You got fucking Kevin Conroy, mm. uh, you know, and and Mark Hamill and all of that. Like some really really great voice actors playing very very bit parts. Unfortunately, um, yeah. all of that was really really good. It, it I just can't get past how choppy it was. I'm not really sure how else to like phrase it. You know, um, I I would have very much Kevin Smith just came out swinging and say, look, right. I love what it used to be. I love the look. I like I love the music for it. But like this isn't what you think it's gonna be, right? Just come out, yeah. say that, swing hard for it, give me something. I mean, if it's gonna be dark, AG, Edge Lord, Castlevania type stuff, let's do that. Right. Mm. Um, just swing for the offenses with that, right? And mm-hmm. th- it can still be campy and it can still be funny. And we've seen so many other uh animations do that, you know, um, without what I feel is a compromise between like appealing to older fans mm-hmm. um, and and like having a vision for where you want this franchise to be in such a clumsy way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Agreed. I'm giving it a 6 out of 10 as well. Uh, next up, we'll move on quickly to a little segment I call Quick Hits where I review a bunch of titles that yeah. Michael Host might or might not have seen. Yep. Uh, so here we go. Firstly, it is Space Jam, A New Legacy. Um, 
in this uh, much-hyped sequel to Space Jam, LeBron James replaces Michael Jordan as the star. Uh, the movie finds LeBron James and his young son, Dom, trapped in a digital space by a rogue AI. So LeBron must get them home safe by leading Bucks, Lola Bunny, and the rest of the Looney Tunes to victory over the AI's digitized champions on the court. Um, a sort of powered-up roster of professional basketball stars. Yeah. Um, there's no two ways about this. Space Jam 2 feels like you're swimming in some WB marketing executive's fever dream for two hours. <sighs> um, the splashes of nostalgia and IP crossovers with like Rick and Morty and all of that and homages can be a wonderful thing, but this sequel rarely takes the time to stand on its own two feet. Uh, the movie is an absolute disaster, featuring lame comedy and cheesy messaging. Uh, basically, the messaging is buy our shit. Um, Three out of ten for me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not great. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about Fear Street. Uh, Netflix has l- recently released a trilogy of Fear Street films. So, not one movie, but three movies mm-hmm. in three weekly installments. Uh, based on the hit series of books by fe- teen horror author R.R. Stein. Um, the trilogy begins in 1994 with a group of teenagers who discover that but terrifying secrets that have haunted their town or shady side for generations may all be connected, and that they may be the next targets. So all three movies will take you through shady sites, sinister history through various time periods ranging from 1994 to 1978, and finally 1666. Uh, one thing to note is that Netflix's Fear Street is R-rated, oh. so unlike the books, it is not supposed to be for children. Uh, but despite the added violence, gore, and blood, to be honest, Fear Street, in my opinion, is okay for all ages. Um, kids these days are used to so much worse. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's fine. You know, yeah. you just show your kids this. It's okay. Like What, what was uh, R-rated uh, in 1994 is not R-rated today. <laughs> it's not the same... It's just not the same level. Okay. Yeah. Kids these days are much more... Um, what, what's the word? Um, uh, exposed? Savvy? Yeah, yeah, much more exposed to this kind of thing. You know? yeah. so, uh, so these are all basically kind of supersized Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes mixed with 90 slasher movies like I Know What You Did Last Summer mm-hmm. uh, just with a bigger budget and better production values. Uh, think this is like goosebumps for grown-up kids. Uh, so it's a 7 out of 10 for me. Oh, wow. For all yeah. three? Um, some are better than the others. The okay. first one is uh is, is first one is probably the strongest. Uh-huh. Uh, and and S is the last one. The middle installment is pretty middling, uh, okay. No pun okay. intended. Yeah, but altogether, I think it's seven out of ten. Nice. Okay. Uh, next up we have Kingdom Ashen of the North. Mm. Uh, the South Korean zombie series returns with an epic and tragic tragic prequel episode that delves into the origins of the resurrection plant, the zombie plague, and a new mysterious villains heartbreaking backstory. So it begins decades before the series, and this 92-minute special uh, features Ashin, who is a mysterious character we briefly, we briefly glimpsed in the mm-hmm. Season 2 finale. Yeah. Here, we meet her as a little girl living in a border village between Joseon and their fierce enemies across the Manchurian Plains, the Jurgen people. So, um, Ashin's tribe are technically Jurgen, mm-hmm. but the fact that they've lived in Joseon land for so long means that they are shunned by the Jurgen as traitors, uh, and unfortunately, due to their racial roots, everyone in Ashin's village are despised as second-class citizens in Korea as well. Um, so with Korea in shambles due to the Japanese evasion in the south, Ashin's border village becomes ground zero for a brewing conflict in the north. Uh, because the Jurgen warriors realize that Joseon forces are stretched so thin because of Japanese invasion. 
So a dispute over a hunting territory threatens to instigate an all-out war and Ashin's family and neighbors are caught in a crossfire. What happens is, without spoilers, um, you already know this like, if you watch the, watch the trailer, Ashin is left often and alone and the distraught girl is tempted to use the resurrection plant, which grows naturally around her area because it's very cold, to save her loved ones. So she stumbles upon an abandoned shrine deep in the woods, uh, learns about the plant's effects from ancient murals uh, carved in the stone, um, and Ashin is convinced that the legends about the plants uh, are true. And she's fueled by grief and fury, and we follow the girl into adulthood as she kind of hones her fighting skills and concocts a diabolical plan to avenge her tribe, and wipe out both the Jurchen and Joseon. Um, Ashin should probably be considered a villain in the grand scheme of the Kingdom saga, considering the death and destruction we've seen in the main series, but Kingdom does a fantastic job of plunging the viewer into the mindset of Ashin through the twists and turns, and allowing us not only to empathize, but admire her tenacity, uh, and also to a certain extent root for her bloody vengeance. So it's emotionally engaging in that way as an as you know building an anti-hero uh, that leaves you feeling as enraged as, it, as its protagonist. But at the end, in the climax, when the full scale of her vengeance becomes clear, I think even the most sympathetic viewer will be, I think, horrified by the by the scope of Ashin's scheme. You know, mm-hmm. um, visually, Ashin of the North's new locales uh, allows the director to play with a vari- wide variety of fresh geographic palettes that are not seen in the Kingdom series, you know, there's the majestic Manchurian expanse, deep dark coniferous forests, uh, dazzlingly white snowscapes. Uh, the bleak and lonely northern scenery is utilized to great effect in conveying Ashen's sorrow and despair. Um, and as always, uh, Kingdom always has a ravishing aesthetic eye. Yeah. Um, it frames rugged terrain, kinetic battles, and detailed period costuming, even like grimy poverty with like a real beautiful finesse. Um, so there are some minor plot holes and logic issues here, but I think overall Ashen of the North is well-paced and unfrolling and engrossing uh, and a good entry into the Kingdom franchise that does much to deepen its mythology, mm. set up a compelling antagonist and expand its world. Uh, so in a broader sense, it does well to open up a myriad of exciting narrative possibilities for Kingdom's upcoming third season or even potential spin-offs. It's a 7.5 out of 10 for me. Uh, nice. Have you seen Kingdom, Ashen of the North? I have not seen that. Um, but I mean, I was watching Kingdom with my mom. She's a big, um, she's a big like Korean series fan. Uh, ah. One of the first zombie things I've watched with her, I think. Um, nice. And so she's a big fan of that. And I've been like, kind of like saving uh, Ashen of the North to watch with her. So I- I'm glad to hear that it's good. Awesome. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's a 7.5 out of 10, which is actually the highest rated thing I've rated uh, in this episode so far. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, we're moving to Apple TV Plus for a show called Schmigadoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schmigadoon is a parody slash love letter to iconic musicals. Uh, the series stars Cecily Strong from SNL and Keegan-Michael Key from Key and Peele mm-hmm. uh, as a couple on a backpacking trip designed to reinvigorate their flagging relationship. Yeah. Uh, when on this backpacking trip, they discover a magical town in which everyone is living in a studio musical from the 1940s. Uh, then they discover that they can't leave until they find true love. The implication is that they're not in love with each other. That's why they can't leave. Yeah. Um, so even if you're not the kind of Broadway musical nerd who would clock the title Schmigadoon as a <laughs> reference to the musical Schmigadoon, uh, the new Apple TV series is really, really hard to dislike. Schmigadoon is very fun. It puts forth a self-aware sense of humor that mocks the blind spots of musicals and celebrates the joy of musicals 
from a place of love. Uh, it's the cabin in the woods of musicals. Uh, yeah, it pokes at silly musical theatre conventions, but it does so in such a sincere and sweet way mm-hmm. that indicates that the creators love those conventions as well. Um, on the downside, I feel it does somewhat run out of steam by the end, which in itself is kind of unintentionally mirroring musicals because musicals tend to have a stronger first half mm-hmm. than, than the second half. Um, that being said, I think this is the type of weird little gem that you need to watch to enjoy at least once. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll watch twice to mem- memorize the catchy musical numbers. Um, <laughs> the original songs are great. Um, if you are a fan of musicals, you recognize how they, be- how they mimic beloved show tunes. Yeah. Uh, and if you like zesty large-scale dance numbers, I think this will be a delight for you. It's also another 7.5 out of 10 for me. Damn. Quick Kids is uh, doing better than... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, main stories, yeah. Uh, next up, uh, moving back to Netflix, we have Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. Oh, uh, Capcom's iconic survival horror series uh, reaches its 25th anniversary this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, in celebration of that milestone, there's plenty of content for fans, including a new Netflix animated series. So Infinite Darkness reunites franchise leads Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield and strongly leans into action. Uh, it runs at a brisk pace, while it weaves in a new story within the video game series world. It's set in 2006 between Resident Evil 4 and 5. Uh, Leon is called to the White House and Mm -hmm. finds it under attack from the undead. Meanwhile, Claire has transitioned to working for international relief organizations overseas. Uh, She soon discovers a war-torn country with a traumatic history that's linked to Leon's investigation, leading to the two friends to reunite on a new mission, uh, with plenty of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, due to its wartime tone and political intrigue, Infinite Darkness focuses more on fast-paced, fast-paced gunplay yeah. uh, than, than horror. Huh. So Infinite Darkness um, feels more in the vein of the middle middle portions of the Resident Evil games, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and their action-oriented sensibilities rather than the claustrophobic terror of the early games or the more recent installments. Um, it's not my kind of Resident Evil, so I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, it, it's more of a Tom Clancy type Resident Evil, really. Uh, so to make things worse, the animation is pretty atrocious. <laughs> uh, the whole thing plays like a, just a giant two-hour cutscene in a game that you can't play. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a three out of ten for me. Uh, you, you've caught a bit of this, right? Like five minutes of it, I I couldn't. I I just couldn't do deal with the animation. Uh, it yeah. was it's it's absolutely terrible. Like that, it. Uh, there there are. There are games that are free to play that have better quality graphics than the animation that we got in this movie. Definitely. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of insane that they released it in the mm-hmm. first place. And like, it's not even like, oh, you know, back in the day, if we were looking at the games um, of that time period where, where this is set in, like, it's a throwback to the, the graphics of the time. You can't do that. Like, it's yeah. Definitely um, yeah, so like complete turn off for me. I put it on. I wasn't even paying attention just because like five minutes of it was just enough for me to not give a shit. Oh, 100% agree, man. Yeah. I can't believe I made it through this. Uh, <laughs> next up, we have another video game adaptation called Werewolves Within. Uh-huh. It is based on Ubisoft's uh, mafia-like VR game of the same name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Werewolves Within is a charmingly slight, low-key horror comedy whodunit. Uh, the story takes place in the small town of Beaverfield, where a proposed pipeline creates division within the community. Uh, when a snowstorm traps its residents together inside the local inn, a newly arrived forest ranger Finn, played by Sam Richardson, uh, and postal worker Cecily, played by Milana Bain Troop, yep. uh, must try to keep the peace 
and uncover the truth behind a mysterious creature that's supposedly a werewolf that has begun terrorizing the community. Um, this film by Josh Rubin is like kind of a joyous hug of a comedy horror movie. It's full of charisma, um, endearingly weird characters, uh, violent antics, and, and an entertaining Knives Out-esque uh, character-driven mystery. Mm. Um, this was a fun werewolf movie that brings the kinetic energy and comedy of, you know, like I said, a, a Knives Out or Clue game while cleverly bringing in uh, werewolf scares. Um, it's a very slight uh, movie, and you probably w- it probably won't be remembered as anything great. Lah. But for the 90 minutes you're in it, you'll have a fun time. So it's a 7 out of 10 for me. Hmm. Uh, next up, we have Monsters at Work on Disney+. Plus. Um, Pixar is following the MCU model by making its own TV shows on Disney+, Plus as well. So Monsters at Work is their first series, and obviously it's a continuation of Monsters, Inc. Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, Monsters, Inc. already got its own prequel movie, um, a very inessential Mike and Sally origin story called Monsters University. Uh, in contrast, from the jump here, you can tell that Monsters at Work has a more obvious reason to exist. The original film... Uh, did, did you watch the original film? Yes, I did. Okay, so I was, I was about to spoil it. Okay, the original <laughs> film um, ended with the discovery that everything Monsters thought they knew about the human world was wrong. Yeah. Children are not toxic. Their laughter is a far more powerful source of energy than their screams. It's a happy ending for our heroes and for a monster world that is in the midst of a severe energy crisis at the start of the movie. But it's also such a drastic upheaval of the social order of things mm-hmm. in Monstropolis. And that uh, it, it's so like a continuation makes perfect sense just to see how this news impacts monsters beyond Mike and Sully. Yeah. So Monsters at Work picks up immediately after the events of Monsters, Inc. Uh, the other monsters at the factory are freaking out about how different their job is now. You know, They don't want to or they don't have the skills to adapt to the new job scope. Uh-huh. And it quickly becomes clear that there's not a real supply of funny monsters like Mike. Uh, so as it turns out, though, the show barely features any Sully or Mike uh, who are supporting characters in, in this new show. And the new main character is a guy called Tyler Tuskman who has just graduated from Monsters University. Um, and it's, it's, he, he even broke Sully's old scare records in the process. So he's a bit of a prodigy in, in scaring kids. Okay. Uh, so he was born and raised in a society that valued being frightening. Uh, not funny. And when he shows up to the factory for his first day at work, he is baffled and utterly ill-equipped for what the new business has become. So the setup is kind of a clever inversion of the plot of Monsters University, where you know the, the natural comedian uh, Mike uh, struggled to convince the faculty that he had the right stuff to be scary. Uh, and the result is a fun workplace comedy for kids. Uh, what the show conspicuously lacks, though, versus the original, yeah. is a clear villain. Uh, uh, and the heart provided by the relationship between Sally and the human kid, Boo. Uh, so there isn't really a heart to the story here. Instead, after setting up the premise, the show mostly careens from one episodic crisis to the next. Uh, nevertheless, uh, good job to Monsters at Work for taking a well-established title mm-hmm. and parlaying it into something uh, intriguing. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can see you working as a workplace comedy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, next up, uh, I will be talking about America, the motion picture on Netflix. Um, this is a wildly tongue-in-cheek animated revisionist historical comedy mm-hmm. uh, featuring a chainsaw-wielding George Washington uh, who <laughs> assembles a team of rebel rousers, including beer-loving bros Sam Adams, a famed scientist Thomas Edison, and acclaimed horseman Paul Revere, uh, and a very pissed-off Geronimo, 
to defeat Benedict Arnold and King James in the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is self-parkian in its silliness, irreverence, and raunchiness, but unfortunately, very few of its jokes land. Um, the film goes all in on its deranged version of the founding of the United States, but has nothing remotely smart to say. Mm-hmm. It is simply aggressively stupid and in love with its own juvenile instincts. It's a bit... Um, yeah, it's a bit. It's very, very bad. It's a one um, out of ten for me. Ooh, okay. Uh, next up, we're moving on to Blood Red Sky on Netflix. Uh, the Blood Red Sky has an insane premise: a vampire fights terrorists on a plane. Um, it sounds like a silly B grade horror action movie, and it is. But it's a fun B grade horror action movie, <laughs> um, and has more emotional depth than you expect. Uh, so yeah, you know, you you be invested in the mother daughter relationship because, as it turns out, the vampire is a mother and she's protecting her kid. Uh, and she flips the tables on terrorists and drinks their blood, but at the same time becomes this you know, uh, feral monster in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of like uh, what was that movie with Harrison Ford uh, where he's a president on a plane? Air Force One. Uh, Air Force One, yeah. But imagine if Air Force One was about a vampire fighting terrorists on the plane. It's kind of the same thing. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a 7 out of 10 for me. It's a mad, stupid movie. Yeah. But you'll but you have fun. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds pretty fun. Do, do they say get off my plane? No, unfortunately uh, not. No. Yeah, unfortunately not. Um, finally, the last couple of movies I'll be talking about is The Tomorrow War. Mm. The Tomorrow War is the new star-studded Hollywood sci-fi blockbuster uh, where the world is stunned when the group, group of time travelers arrive from the year 2051 to deliver an urgent message. 30 years into the future, mankind is losing a global war against a deadly alien species. The only hope for survival is for soldiers and civilians from the present to be transported to the future to join the fight. Uh, among those recruited is a high school teacher and family man, Dan Forrester, played by Chris Pratt. Uh, so he's determined to save the world for his young daughter. Uh, Dan teams up with a brilliant scientist played by Yvonne Strahovski and his estranged father, uh, J.K. Simmons, in a desperate quest to rewrite the fate of the planet. Uh, mm-hmm. All in all, The Tomorrow War is an earnest effort to bring something new to the time travel action genre. But the truth is, this is a 2021 movie made from the worst parts of the super dumb popcorn blockbusters from the 90s and the 1980s. Oh, uh, it's action set piece after action set piece with little in the way of emotion or intelligence. Uh, very bland, so it's a 4 out of 10 for me. Uh, mm. But if you hey, if you think that's bad, next up, we got <laughs> Snake Eyes. Um, Snake Eyes is the latest from the live-action movie franchise, G.I. Joe. Um, the nameless, faceless ninja commando has appeared in G.I. Joe The Rise of the Cobra in 2009 uh-huh. uh, and in G.I. Joe Retaliation in 2013. He's back with an origin story. Uh, Henry Golding uh, stars as Snake Eyes, who is a tenacious loner who is welcomed into an ancient Japanese clan called the Arashikage uh, after saving the life of their heir apparent. Uh, upon arrival in Japan, the Arashikage teach Snake Eyes the ways of the ninja, while also providing something that he's been longing for, uh, a home. But mm. when secrets from his past are revealed, Snake Eyes' uh, honor and allegiance are tested. So, okay, that's the lore. Mm-hmm. But is this movie good? I mean, no, not at all. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's boring, it's insipid, it's nonsensical. And worst of all for an action movie, Snake Eyes features some of the worst fight scenes ever put on a big screen. Oh, no. They are disgracefully bad. Like, like there are videos out there that are wondering whether like the cameraman was drunk while filming Snake Eyes because you know like just none of the angles made sense you know 
Uh, low budget CW shows like the Arrow, like Arrow, have better fight scenes. Seriously. Oh, uh, yeah, one out of ten for me. Probably the worst rated uh film. Uh, or, or anything of, of, of this month, you know. Uh, one of the worst movies you will ever see. Oh, um, good God. Gosh, you know. Uh, any of those uh, stick out to you that you might want to watch? Uh, I think I'll, I'll check out Blood Red Sky. Okay. Uh, Shmigadun. Am I pronouncing it? Shmigadun? Yeah, Shmigadun sounds pretty fun as well. Um, Fear Street is on a back burner. Where was Within? Yeah. I did play the game for a bit. So I'm I'm curious about that, but nothing. Uh, monsters that will might be something I'll, I'll catch with my my nephews maybe. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's the perfect show to catch yeah, with nephews. Because right. I mean, like they do, like they. I think they've watched um the original Monsters Inc. and they watch Monsters University as well. So that should mm-hmm. be fairly fun for that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Kingdom is probably the top of the list. It is it awesome. still the highest rated that we've gone through today? It is. Yeah, Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think it's gonna that's gonna change. Yeah, um, and even Kingdom wasn't that highly rated, you know, in seven point five, which yeah. which is kinda kinda sad like, actually. Um anyways, <laughs> uh let's move on to something you're gonna talk about, yeah. which is the climax to the Troll Hunter saga by Gilmo del Toro. Uh what do you think about Troll Hunters, Rise of the Titans? Uh I, I've got some issues with it. Uh but I had Same. I had fun. Uh yeah. I, I think it is a fitting end to the franchise. Uh, yeah. even though the end of the movie I didn't fit well with me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but but essentially, you know, um, first off, like straight up, like given the fact that, you know, uh, Del Toro uh, is Del Toro's franchise and they've been working with Pixar for it. Um, there is something to say about Rise of the Titans and its production value. Um, the series that we got, right, like Troll Hunters, Tribulo, and Wizards, those were all great. But I think Rise of the Titans like kind of takes it up a notch, you know. Mm. Uh, add in all kind of your favorite characters coming back, some of your not so favorite characters coming back. Uh, Tro- Rise of the Titans kind of picks off where Wizards left off. Uh, mm. you know, kind of like hit on to the finale where you have this entire ensemble cast, um, come in to kind of fight the big bads and you know the end of the world. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the fight scenes are pretty damn good. Yeah. Right? So I'm going to start off with the things that I found really, really impressive. Uh, Rise of the Titans has, in my opinion, some of the best animated kaiju fight scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, like hands down, right? Like, Pacific Rim's got nothing on this. It's that that good, uh, in my opinion. But outside of that, I, I think, like, they were struggling to fit so many characters into the story that no one really gets a really good arc um, for kind of the finale. I feel like Jim's arc was just all over bleh. the place. Yeah, yeah, it was just bleh. It was, okay, so basically outside of the action itself and the visual pizzazz that you get from it being the finale of like so many things together, mm-hmm. um, the, yeah, the, the character work was very weak. The story arc was very weak and, and kind of boring to be honest. And, and the problem with that is that I, I feel like Wizards was meh in terms mm. of what we were doing and the fact that the finale was running off of Wizards also made it very meh. Yeah. Because it's essentially the extension of that kind of same story, you know. And I feel like when Wizards kind of came in, we lost a lot of the momentum that you got from the couple of seasons of Troll Hunters. Or not, well, not seasons, but the different parts of Troll Hunters that we have. And the really, really kind of compelling sci-fi world building that we got from Tree Below that we never got to explore again. Yeah. Which is kind of sad. Uh, and then we got Wizards, which was like not very good because it was a setup series to this ending, and like it didn't really quite work. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, like parts of it was fun. Some of the jokes landed pretty well. You know, it's nice to kind of see all all your characters like riff off of each other in kind of like inside jokes that you have to have invested a lot of time over the course of this franchise to know, yeah. uh, which we have. Um, so it was good in that manner, but like wholly uneven. Um, and yeah, outside of like one or two like really really fantastic fight scenes, um, yeah, it, it it was okay, right? Like a fitting end. Um, and yeah. then yeah. And I, I didn't like the ending. I think the ending was too frivolous. Man, um, how would you how would you rate it overall? I'm I'm gonna give this a six out of ten, right? As yeah, it's same, kind of same. like stand standalone movie because I do feel, uh, like we love Troll Hunters. Troll Hunters isn't perfect. I wouldn't consider it S tier animation by any means, but it's a solid A tier. I feel, mm-hmm. uh, and just to kind of cap all of that off, I feel like Rise of the Titans brings some interesting things to the table in terms of scale which yeah. I like. I, I think this is the first time you get to see like consequences and 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 fights on a grand scale, which you don't get in the series themselves, uh, mm-hmm. which is cool. Absolutely. Yeah, but, I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah, but it embodies the weaknesses of the franchise uh, and magnifies it a also, lot more yes. yeah, at the same yeah. time. Uh, I, yeah. I think like it's a bit lost in terms of, of how to focus on things. The way that, you know, they split up the original franchise into three different kind of series really helped because it helped you to focus on the protagonist of that particular series, right? Mm-hmm. So you're focusing on Jim and the trolls and troll hunters. You're focusing on, on um, oh my God, I can't remember their names. Uh, you're focusing on Amara, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and crawl for that. Uh, in, in tree below, and then for wizards, you kind of start to see a problem when whereby Jim comes in and and Claire comes in, and you still have Duxie and Merlin and all of that. Where and it get, starts to get a little confused. So its main problem is that there is no one figure that you can actually focus on. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all over the place in terms of its storytelling through the eyes of its characters. Uh, and because, um. The strength of the franchise is also its weakness in that the original three different series never wrap up character arcs enough for you to feel like this um, ending is earned. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Totally. I might even go lower than you, actually. I think I might go like a 5 or 5.5. Okay. Okay. I, I think that's fair. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to like just cut out the last 10 minutes of yeah. the film, right? I'm just ignoring that and yeah. we, by ignoring that, I can comfortably give it a six but it would be lower for me if, if it wasn't that. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, a, a mild disappointing end to uh, True Hunters Rise of the Titans but I would recommend that you watch at least True Hunters and Tree Below because those are good series. Yeah, those are uh, good. Yeah, that you could enjoy. Okay, uh, finally to wrap up Journey right. Quality 44, mm-hmm. um, we are going to be bringing back the poll list where I'll be talking about Project Hail Mary, which is the third book by Andy Weir. Yep. Uh, and it finds the author going back to what made him famous in the first place. Um, Weir rose to fame with The Martian, mm-hmm. uh, a book and eventually a movie about a man stranded on Mars who uses complicated and compelling real science, real hard sci-fi, to get himself home. Um, while Weir's second book, Artemis, deviated from that formula, yep. um, his latest harkens back to the Martian's formula, but with bigger stakes and one major addition. 
Um, Project Hail Mary feels like a more mature, more veteran writer yep. going back to his most prized uh, formula and then making an, a bigger, improved version of it. Uh, yeah, Project Hail Mary is better than Martian, I'm calling it now. So. <laughs> um, if you love reading about someone using science to solve problems in space, you're going to love Project Hail Mary. Um, it's the story of a man named Ryland Grace who wakes up with temporary amnesia. He doesn't know where he is, when he is, or even who he is. Eventually, he figures out he's on a deep space mission to save Earth from a dangerous, molecular-sized alien, a, a bacteria, mm-hmm. uh, that is cooling off the sun. Essentially, the bacteria is feeding off the sun, uh, lowering its luminosity, which might eventually cause, will eventually cause an ice age on Earth and killing off most of its biomes. Um, Interestingly enough, the reason that there's time to do this mission is because of the years and years of climate change that Earth has done. So because of the greenhouse gases coating the Earth, we have a bit more heat left uh, to to save. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting twist. Um, if, so that's good. So, but but if something isn't done soon, Earth will freeze and everyone will die. And his mission is our planet's last chance. True, truly a hail mary. Um, upping the stakes is the fact that even though Ryland is one of three people on the journey, yep. when he wakes up, the other two people are dead, uh, leaving the full possibility of humanity's survival on his shoulders. The other two people have not survived the the cryogenic uh, sleep that they've been sent on. You know, so you've got one man on a spaceship who has to save an entire planet. Um, in terms of stakes, they don't get much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. And as you'd expect, Weir puts Ryland in increasingly difficult situations as things on a mission go wrong, need to be fixed, adapted, and more. Um, all with the ticking clock of a mass extinction on our minds. Uh, that alone, right, would make for an intriguing story. Uh, albeit one that's almost too similar to The Martian. Okay. okay. Uh, which, which is why Weir puts a twist. Uh, okay, that's not a huge spoiler because the twist is revealed 170 pages into a 470-page novel. Okay. But it's, it's a big enough reveal that if you're not interested in reading, if, you're, if you are interested in reading the book, you should probably stop listening here. Um, <laughs> okay, my, my, my short non-spoiler review is that Project Hail Mary is nerdy as fuck and a wild page turner if you love hard sci-fi stuff. Okay, so here comes the spoilers in 5, 4, 3, 2, one okay, so this happens in the first act, so it's not that big of a spoiler. Yeah, but it, it shook me like, when I when I read it because <laughs> I did I because I, I didn't think that Andy Will would ever go in this territory. The biggest thing that differentiates Project Hail Mary from The Martian is that Earth isn't the only planet being threatened by these microscopic alien energy suckers. You mm-hmm. know, um, Ryland makes this discovery when another spaceship docks with his in deep space. Uh, near a star that Earth, be- Earth believes could hold an answer because for some reason, this star, Tau Ceti, is not affected by this microbe. So he has to find out why that is, right? Yeah. As it turns out, another alien spaceship is there to find out the same thing. Um, and so Weir puts a unique brand of writing about science problem solving and now includes him trying to work out the problems of first contact uh, and as a single human trying to communicate with a single alien intelligence, uh, Ryland eventually names the alien Rocky because he's described as kind of a giant rock spider type creature. Okay. Um, and he and Ryland become friends after many, 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 many months of using science and technology to figure each other out. 
um, there's a lot of back and forth about the differences between our planets, species, how to communicate, how to physically interact, and more. It's a bit of a it's a bit of an arrival situation. Um, so the book is broadly split into four sections: uh, before Rocky, mm-hmm. uh, meeting Rocky, being friends with Rocky, uh, and the finale, which is him and Rocky trying to solve the problem. Yeah. Uh, all. All of this is interspersed with flashbacks to how Earth discovered the microscopic aliens and hatched the plan to send three people into space to solve it. So it's a bit of a flashback current, flashback current cut out situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Weir uses Ryland's initial amnesia to great effect here. Um, telling the story of him in space, meeting Rocky and trying to save humanity while occasionally having Ryland remember something back on Earth, like how he got involved in the project, who the other scientists were, etc., um, each flashback reveals more about Ryland's character and gives additional helpful context to his budding friendship with the alien. Yeah. Um, all, all these pieces of the story feature tons of weird signature, highly readable, wildly detailed science jargon, uh, which is absolutely fascinating, even if you can't make heads or tails of it. Um, the way he writes about something so utterly complex, like physics or chemistry or biology, in a way that can make you understand it enough you know, and are both interested and engaged with it. It's a true talent. I've never seen anyone been able to get used to be so interested in very complicated mm-hmm. math or very complicated science. Uh, when that's applied to the obviously very interesting idea of first contact with an alien species, it gets exponentially better. Um, Project Hail Mary, you know, the one drawback is that it kind of feels stuck for in place for a long, long stretch of time in the middle. Uh, I, I could see how some people might have that issue. Yeah. But for me, that's okay. Because the joy of discovering uh, truths about a different alien species, the, co- the conversations uh, and the fun of aliens discovering things about humans and vice versa, to me, that is en- endlessly captivating. You know? It's a bit of a, a, of a two-handed play between uh, a non-speaking alien and Ryland, mm-hmm. uh, who eventually develop a bond so strong that adds even more dramatic stakes to their last-ditch attempts to save both planets. Uh, and make no mistake, Weir throws every possible problem imaginable at the <laughs> unlikely pair. Um, we won't say what happens either way, but the ending was not what I was expecting. Okay. But it ends in, in an honest and appropriate way. All right. um, Ryland sort of has to make a decision later on whether to save his species or Rocky's species, you know. Um, and it's done with such emotional heft that it really had me conflicted. Um, Project Hail Mary may just be Andy Weir doing The Martian again with bigger stakes and an alien, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to put down. Um, I devoured it in days, uh, two days to be honest, with each twist and turn, both past and present, providing new things to discover and think about, all while delightfully almost excruciatingly uh, you know you, you feel so trapped with the, the characters in space the claustrophobia the loneliness um, fans of aliens and science and space travel will 100% enjoy this mm-hmm. uh, Project Hill Mary is a 9.5 out of 10 for me so this is the highest rated thing of the show <laughs> yeah. right at the end here yeah easily easily yeah I'm oh, glad I, I'm glad we got something above an 8 Oh, hell yeah. And Project Hail Mary is, is a near-perfect book. Um, it will be adapted into a film. Uh, so oh. Yeah. Uh, it's being written by Drew Goddard, who also adapted Very The Martian. Nice. So, so I got I got faith in that. But the thing is, right, the, the Project Hail Mary story is too big for a film. So I don't know uh, how they're going to do it. I mean, yeah. it could be a trilogy. You never know. Hopefully. Hopefully. Like, the fil- first film genuinely can end with the meeting of Rocky. Oh, nice. Okay, okay. 
as a cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be. I mean, like, I don't think Godard has done has done anything wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe Matt Damon will come back. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. If there is like one serious flaw to Project Hail Mary, uh-huh. is that Rylan Grace is a carbon copy of um of Mark Watney. Oh. They are the same person. They approach things the same way. They talk the same way. Uh, so in a sense, he's kind of recycling something. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to the point where I thought like Project Hail Mary may have even been served better by just making this a sequel to The Martian. Oh hell yeah! I would, you know, if they really did that and they cast Matt Damon, I would watch that. Mm-hmm. Like I've said before, The Martian is one of my favorite movies in yeah. recent history, and I I yeah. rewatched it a lot. So like I would be totally down with that if he was up for that, because it makes um, total sense for some for a man who has lived alone on Mars and survived all of that. For, for yeah yeah. He'll, he'll be the guy that you send on this mission, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Ryan Gosling has already been cast as uh, Ryland Grace. Oh, God. What was yeah. the last space Gosling film that we got? He played uh, Neil Armstrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, never yeah. mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I think like, you know, this is a much better material for him to play with. And I think he can pull off the comedy here, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Project Hero Mary is a definite recommend. You can, if you live in Singapore, you can find it at the National Library. Uh, but, you know, if you want to buy it, which I recommend that you do, you know, Book Depository, Amazon, Kinokuniya, wherever books are sold, you can find Project Hero Mary. One of my favorite books of 2021, science fiction or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is very, very hard sci-fi. Uh, I tried to fact-check a bunch of stuff that Andy Weir did here. Yeah. Uh, from biology to chemistry to physics. And my God, he does his research. He is so accurate with all these things. I love it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's insane. It's insane how much detail goes into it, you know? Yeah, I, I love it when sci-fi authors do their work. Like, it's, it's, one of, it's, it's a great joy mm-hmm. because I feel like I learn while Same. enjoying my, my fiction, which is great. Yeah, like I had no idea how different atmosphere works or how gravity works or how time dilation works, you know. Mm-hmm. And he di- he does the math for you. I love it. Uh, and that's the crazy thing, you know. And I was like, I mean, if you look it up, it turns out it's true. The, like, the physics is sound. Um, man, incredible. I uh, love Andy Weir. Uh, we'll be back next month. Well, actually, later this month uh, for a couple of beholds that I'm very excited to do. Uh, first off, in a couple of weeks, we'll be back with uh, FX dramedies on Disney+. Plus. Yep. Uh, because one of my favorite things from FX is that I feel that, like you know, the HBO is the king of prestige drama. Um, FX is the king of prestige dramedies. Mm-hmm. Um, two of the four titles that I'll be talking about on Behold 33. Yeah. If I were to list my top five shows of all time, two of them are there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like Atlanta and Better Things <laughs> are two or, two of my top five shows of all time. Yeah, and if I were to list my top fifty shows of all time, Baskets and well, Baskets will be there. And Dave, I'm not quite sure yet because the show hasn't ended. Yeah, okay, but it, it's fair. it's a very it's still a very strong show. So we'll be talking about Atlanta, Baskets, Better Things, and Dave. Subsequently, we'll be talking about westerns. Uh-huh. Uh, we'll be talking about Tombstone, Unforgiven, The Searchers, and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Mm-hmm. Okay, why I wanted to do westerns here is, right, and this is kind of a primer for you as well before you start watching these things, yeah. is that I wanted to contrast Tombstone, which is, I feel, the most classical western out there. Okay. It's very... It's very ultra macho, very cool, very slick, you know, all the western tropes are here, you know. Uh-huh. It's, tro- it's tropey to a fault. Tombstone is, but it doesn't make it any less fun. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to contrast that with three Westerns that subvert Western tropes. Okay. And 
Unforgiven by Clean Eastwood, Clean Eastwood, right? Yep. It, it's very harsh and very realistic, and it really deconstructs the coolness of westerns and 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 emphasizes that no, like it wasn't cool living in this time. The violence was real, the dirt was real, the disease was real. It's so grimy and dirty. You know, when you watch Unforgiven, it's not a it's not a fun place to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, the Searchers by John Ford and John Wayne deconstructs the racism of white Americans against Native Americans, especially in that time. Yeah. By by making John Wayne at first the protagonist and then the villain of the of the film because the, his hatred for Native Americans becomes so overwhelming mm-hmm. that you start to hate him. And finally, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is, I'm going to say, a Western version of Black Swan. Um, yeah. Because it's about celebrity and obsession and culture. And... and w- the the idea of the American myth making American celebrity began with the pulp fiction comics of cowboys, right? You know, and and this tells the story of of Robert Ford becoming enamored with a celebrity Jesse James, uh, and his obsession with him. And I I think like those are all very interesting subversions of the Western genre and yep. deconstructions of the Western genre. So yeah, we're excited to talk about that later this month. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. So I'll I'll definitely clear Tombstone first since we're doing a compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. thing here yeah yeah sounds good I, I've got a fair bit to catch up before we do the drama these though so oh nice nice yeah mm-hmm. awesome you know you got uh, you got about tr- well uh, sorry to pull the veil here like we're recording this a week before <laughs> uh, the first so you have about three weeks to get that done so it should be okay yeah yeah should be alright we shall uh, see we shall see okay awesome and also our next genre equality has the Suicide Squad mm-hmm. by James Gunn which mm-hmm. you know sounds good it looks good it looks I, good I, I, I mean, King Shark, you know, oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, King Shark, oh, I do have to say King Shark is obviously stolen from the Harley Quinn series, but okay, yeah. fine. Uh, okay, I mean, fine. I, I think as long as they continue to have any live action stuff that involves Harley Quinn, it's going to draw comparisons to the to the animated series. Uh, which is Which is not necessarily a bad thing because the animated series has been hitting out of the park consistently over the last two seasons. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, and of course, we'll be talking about A twenty four's Arthurian legend, yeah. the Green Knight. I uh, will be talking about the latest season of Rick and Morty. Mm-hmm. I'll be delving into the latest seasons of Legends of Tomorrow and Tuka and Bertie, and a bunch of other movies like Free Guy, Jungle Cruise, uh, Old, and and a bunch of other stuff. Isa's gonna be talking about the new Witcher animated sidequel. I'm not sure what to call it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just part of the series. It's a side hustle thing. I, I don't know if they will actually tie it up with the mainline stuff because we're getting a prequel and a sequel and this is like a side story. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. Uh, and Isa will be back with a few recommendations for Isa's anime corner. Oh, yep. Uh, so, yeah. Lots to talk about next month and lots to look forward to. Please remember to like, subscribe, and if you like, even share uh, our YouTube videos, you know. Uh, we're available on YouTube now as well as our traditional home on Mixcloud. Yep, uh, yep. Any closing thoughts before we cap it off? Uh, we've got uh, we've got big announcements for next month. Um, coming soon, Coming yeah. really, really soon. So keep a lookout on our socials, on our Facebook, uh, and all of that. Um, and some exciting new things that we're not going to spoil. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, exciting things coming your way, guys. Um, yeah, we'll let you guys know soon. Awesome. Uh, That has been this episode of General Equality. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.